0: The idea that Democrats can be the party of like voting rights and not be sustainably investing in Alabama and Mississippi is like insane to me. Or we can be the party of climate and environmental protection and we're not putting in the work and time to build progressive infrastructure in West Virginia. Like there's such a disconnect there.
1: Hello this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Emily Kaufman. She's currently the executive director of The Groundwork Project. Emily came to The Groundwork Project after a career in political communications, where she worked for politicians like Chuck Schumer, Andrew Cuomo, Paul Hodes, and Joe Kennedy III. With The Groundwork Project, she worked with Joe Kennedy after his run for the US Senate in Massachusetts to support progressive fighters in red states. Emily has a good story, and if you're interested in how he can compete more effectively across the country, you'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Emily of the Groundwork project This episode is brought to you by
0: Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your
1: organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is g r a p
0: h i c a c y dot com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Emily, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yes. Hi, I'm Emily Kaufman. She/her pronouns. I. I'm 37 years old. I'm based north of Boston in a little town called Manchester-by-the-Sea, where I was born and raised, moved back here in my adult life. I am a mom of two. I have a seven-year-old and an almost four-year-old, and I've spent most of my career in electoral politics and political communication and currently serve as the executive director of Groundwork Project, which is a, a new political advocacy org. We're a couple years old, focused on investing in hyperlocal organizing in regions of the country that progressives and Democrats tend to overlook and underresource.
1: Well, I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you about that. You mentioned where you grew up. What kind of place is that?
0: Manchester by the Sea is a, a tiny, a tiny town. Um, it's on the other Cape of Massachusetts. I would say everyone knows Cape Cod, but there's a northern Cape called Cape Ann. So it's one of a cluster of towns that make up Cape Ann. Traditionally, I always oriented people by talking about we're right next to Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is a somewhat famous New England city with a big fishing industry history and the perfect storm took place in Gloucester, Mass. So that used to be what I oriented people around. But a couple of years ago, a movie came out actually called Manchester by the Sea. I don't know if you ever saw it, it's like the saddest movie of all time. So so now it's like a like a just devastating tragic movie about a, a family and and their kids. So now I find people have a very strange sort of orientation around around the town of Manchester by the Sea. But that's all to say, it's a small town north of Boston. It's near the water. It's pretty quiet. My family's not from this area originally. My dad's from the Midwest. My mom was from New Jersey. And my dad got a job in the Boston area when I was quite little, and they ended up in Manchester as a result. Um, And I never, ever expected to be back here. I think, like most kids who grew up in small towns, had you asked me when I was like 16 where I was going to be living as an adult, I would have told you, you know, Paris um, (laughs) or something, or at least New York City. But, you know, life intervenes in funny ways. My father passed away a couple of years ago, so my husband and I actually moved back and bought the house that I that I grew up in. So I live and work every day in the house I grew up in, which is for the most part my my greatest blessing, but also complicated in many ways. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's Manchester.
1: How do you go down the road that takes you into politics?
0: It's funny. Neither of my parents, growing up, I wasn't raised in a um especially political household like I don't think I had a lot of exposure to like Democratic Party stuff or elections. My parents weren't very focused on those things. In retrospect, I realized I was raised in a very progressive household, just in terms of sort of values and issues we were exposed to. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So I think I had a strong progressive orientation, you know, as I kind of went to college, although I don't think I really knew, knew that or knew, knew what it meant in a political sense. But I went to school in Chicago. I went to Northwestern and I was there, so 2003 to 2007. And so particularly the second half of that experience was the Obama era. And he was this, you know, rising, amazing local politician who was going to run for president. And that just, I think, infused my, my college experience in the city itself with this political lens and activism that I think really sparked my interest in in this world. I I was studying journalism. I was a journalism major. I thought I wanted to be a political reporter. I started writing a little bit about politics while I was in college um, for some of the campus outlets, and I really enjoyed that and really thought that I wanted to, to be a reporter and sort of had what I think is maybe a common thing where when I graduated, I was like, Actually, I don't know if I really want to be a reporter and so had to do some career course correcting a little bit.
1: <laughs> what kind of jobs out of college?
0: So, when I came out of college, I had this, you know, sort of hard-fought and um very valuable journalism degree in some ways. It's it's a good journalism school and the idea that I wasn't going to use it to be a reporter was was hard. In that process, I felt like I had found a passion of mine, which was around the content of what I was writing, which was politics. So I hadn't like interned in my local representative's office. Like I really didn't have a lot of exposure to the industry of politics. So I I stayed in Chicago. I was waitressing um, and babysitting the summer after I graduated. Um, I also thought I was probably going to stay around Chicago, but I really just started researching like political jobs and what do people do who want to work in politics? And, you know, it was it wasn't that long ago, but it was sort of long ago. The way information flowed was different. And I, I was literally on online being like, you know, entry-level political jobs and seeing what popped up. And obviously, D.C. quickly rises to the top. And I remember going to like Senate.gov. And, and back in the day, it was literally like a Word document that you downloaded off Senate.gov that had all the open job postings for the week. And so I basically applied to every single entry-level job I, I could find on the Hill I probably applied to like 30 of them, staff assistant, press assistant, and only one office called me back. And I went through an interview process with them and ended up getting that job. And it was Chuck Schumer's office, who, to be candid, I didn't even really know who he was at the time. They needed writing help. It was like a press assistant job and they really needed folks who could write. So that was where the journalism degree was incredibly valuable and ended up setting me on this sort of political communications path.
1: I guess you could have had a lot less good fortune than landing at a New York Senator who really is interested in the press and in communications, right?
0: Yes. Yes. It was one of those moments where it was like a, like the universe just really pulling strings in your favor, sort of like, I I had no idea what I was getting into or signing up for. And again, barely knew who the Senator was, as you can imagine, it was a tough interview. It was a tough process. (laughs) And I remember they asked me, like, they were so intense about it. And they asked me if I could describe the schism between upstate and downstate New York. And I was like, I'm from Boston. Like, I don't don't know, you know, like, so anyways, that was a good indication of how, of, of that experience, that office, which was incredibly intense, incredibly demanding, probably the best sort of Crash course in political communications one hundred and one you could ask for given yes that he's very press focused and press savvy. Um, some of the folks that I worked with in that office are some of the you know most impressive communicators I've ever worked with. So um, it was grueling, but it was a really good introduction.
1: What was the syllabus like for that crash course? What kinds of things and who are these people that you think were yeah, great? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's
0: it's so fun. It's so funny now. It's like um, uh. I remember on like my first day, them telling me one of my jobs was to monitor the wire, meaning like the AP wire and the Reuters wire that the stories came over. And I remember just having absolutely no idea what they were talking about. And I was like, is that a thing that I like, is it on my computer? Is it like, you know? Um, so So what I would say is it was a crash course in all the basics, like the tools, right? Like how to how to monitor press, how to do pitches, how to write, how to do press releases. but but more than anything, it was a crash course in identifying opportunities in press and how to use the media to tell your story. Senator Schumer and the folks he had working for him just had a really shrewd ability to do that. And and again, this was a long time ago. this was before he is where he is now, but already, you know, he was obviously had um, a big reputation.
1: Well, you know the the joke was yes, that- <laughs> yes.
0: The most dangerous place in Washington. Yeah,
1: between him and a microphone, mm-hmm, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he had really high. But I will say, gosh, and you know, I, I worked in the office for about a year, a little more than a year. Um, and I can talk about where I went from there. But so, so it's not like I, I knew knew or know Senator Schumer closely in any way. But, but I appreciated that from my perspective, which again, entry level. 21-year-old kid, limited, but his interest in the press wasn't about ego so much, it appeared to me, as it was about political strategy. And he just saw that the press was an incredibly powerful tool for getting what he wanted or needed politically around an issue, around a a local something he was fighting on, around the machinations in Washington. You know, I've had other experiences where people are interested in press for ego purposes, and, and they like to see their name there. And for him, it it felt like it was it was always strategic, which I, I think was an interesting first experience for me.
1: What was the kind of thing that someone in the office or you would spot that would have strategic value? Oh
0: my gosh, the examples are so good and I'm, my memory is gonna butcher them a little bit. But so I was focused on um, upstate New York. He had three press secretaries, which is tells you how much he prioritized press. Um, so one was focused on New York City, one was focused on Washington, one was focused on upstate New York. And I was the like deputy to the, to the guy that did Upstate. A huge part of our job was to both scour local press, but also stay in really, really good contact with the folks who were like the senator's representatives Upstate to figure out the local issues. Like what was going on? Like what could the senator intervene on to you know, really fight for something the local community cared about? Um, and so when I think back, I literally want to dig these up. When I think back to some of the press releases I wrote, about like Senator Schumer steps in to save local pony show, like it was literally things like that, and, and they would come both from sort of again monitoring press, but we also had these really really fantastic representatives in each of the regions upstate, and so they would have their they would have their eye and ears on the most the most critical the most local local issue, the things people really cared about, and we'd find a way for the senator to intervene or fight for it, and the headlines. That Generated on press releases are something I lovingly laugh at now, but it also worked. You know, Um, we would get a local story about how he was fighting for the local pony show that everyone cared about, and more often than not, he would be effective in the fight he was waging for them. That is a big a big lesson from my time there.
1: How do you move from one notable New York statewide politician to another with Andrew Cuomo?
0: I definitely overall enjoyed my time in Senator Schumer's office. It was a really good sort of intro to the Hill, intro to Washington, all those things. And the people were amazing. Um, I did not love Washington. There were things happening in sort of my personal and family life at that time that really colored that experience for me. I came from an upper middle class family that had a, a fair amount of privilege growing up. But starting around middle school into high school and college for me, um, my family had a lot of of financial challenges and volatility and, and struggles. But at the time, D.C. felt to me like a place of only people with tremendous amount of privilege. And the people working in the offices I was working or, or the people I was meeting, it seemed like more often than not had a very upper, upper middle class perspective and were 99 point whatever percent white. And um, I struggled with that, not because I was some crazy outsider to that, but I think because of what I was experiencing personally at the time, DC just didn't feel particularly like comfortable to me. I really grew to have a strong point of view, which has informed a lot of my work moving forward about the need for better representation in sort of those rooms of power. I don't know if it still exists, but at the time, um, if you worked in a in a Senate office, you were um, eligible for student loan forgiveness um, from the government in some way. And so, but I remember sort of always being the only person that took advantage of that program. And and this happened in a few different offices that, that I worked since then. Um, and I remember just thinking like, that's so crazy that, you know, this is an office full... Of people setting policy around, say, education around economics, and one of the press gals has student loans. So it's not to cast shade on them or intentions or anything like that, but not just in the office where I work, but in all the the DC sort of um, stuff I was exposed to, I just was like, how is it only these people who are in these decision making rooms and and setting policy agendas? It's just it's just not it's just not the same. And obviously, and this is, of course, there's more awareness around this now, but like, no matter how well intentioned, if you're not somebody who has struggled with student loans or food insecurity or housing insecurity or any of those things, you're going to have a different perspective around that policy. And you're going to fight a little differently than if you've been personally touched. And so I felt like D.C. was a little bit of a a bubble. And I, I struggled with that. So... Sorry, long, long and winding way to New York. But I was interested in moving to New York City and through a former colleague of mine in Schumer's office um, who had gone to work for Andrew Cuomo, um, I got a job with him based in New York City as a as a um, sort of deputy press secretary for his New York City office. So after about a year and a half in D.C., I moved up to New York.
1: How was that? How was it different?
0: It was similar in that it was a rigorous, demanding press operation. And I felt well prepared for that coming from Senator Schumer's office. It was different in that the issues we were working on felt like supremely sort of local, which I really liked. Um, I didn't mind losing the sort of Washington stuff. I liked that what we were fighting for was very locally rooted and locally forged sort of. And that content was more interesting to me the people I worked with in Cuomo's office, at his AG's office, were to this day, hands down, some of the most unbelievably talented people I've ever worked with in my life. I remember feeling like, what did I do right to get to be around these people all the time? And and they were they weren't necessarily traditional politicos, you know. There there a lot of them are are lawyers in an AG's office, but you know the woman who had who headed up the civil rights division there the man who headed up the the financial crimes sort of unit there. You know, these were lawyers in their 50s, 60s, beyond. And for me, being early 20s, getting to spend time with them and work closely with them is like one of the gifts I think I am most grateful for in my journey, particularly in that office above, above all other ones. It was so formative for me just being around those people.
1: Andrew Cuomo had quite a career going forward from that going to the governorship for a while. And then I guess we who follow politics all know that he exited from that under some duress. Any view back at him now from where you are now?
0: When I think about, you know, my experience in that office, and a lot of this was a product of being, again, sort of a young, pretty entry-level person, my experience of that office sort of had little to do with him in a way. I was much more with the leaders of the various departments and that, that was sort of my charge. My experience was kind of divorced from him as a person or a, as a figure. Um, and it was a huge office. You know, AG's offices are massive. I think there was definitely some some sort of toxic practices and cultures in that office. I can't say it was shocking. But my experience in the office was, was a very good one. Um, and I it's a complicated thing because I have gratitude for that, um, for that experience.
1: Of course. What was next?
0: I was in New York for a couple of years with Cuomo and then, um, I, uh, started to get antsy. Um, I liked New York, um, but I'm, I'm hoping my years are so, so Cuomo was starting to think about a governor's run. Um, and I was starting to get antsy and feeling like my role, like I was kind of I wanted to, a bigger role and there were like, as you can imagine, so many players in Cuomo's office and circle. And I just started to feel like I'm not going to get the role I want and they're going to launch this like governor's race and I'm ready to like be the main press person. And that's just not really in the cards in this environment probably. So I, again, via old sort of Schumer connections, um, knew the folks that were running comms at the DSCC at the time. And so I went in to talk to them and they said, we can put you on a race if you want. We have a bunch of of key races that all need comms people. So we can put you on a race. And so they ended up sending me to New Hampshire, which at the time was a very competitive Senate race. It didn't turn out that way. So they sent me up and basically, you know, the DS pays to have a press person in in the campaign. So I was the press secretary for a candidate, Paul Hodes, who was a former congressman, who was running for Senate against Kelly Ayotte, who went on to win
1: did you like campaign politics?
0: I liked campaign politics. I was that. And that was really what drove me to like, like, it was a weird, it was sort of a, it was a big jump at the time. Like I, you know, had a, what looked from the outside, like a pretty good gig in New York city, like with a politician that was going places. And, um, so when I was like, I'm going to move to New Hampshire, I'll never forget having dinner with my dad. And he was like, what? (laughs) I just felt like called to it. I felt like I really want a campaign experience. I like the idea of coming back to New England. And I just was feeling like I was going to get stuck if I stayed in my current job. So I did like campaigning. It was an interesting campaign. There were a lot of sort of national contextual things going on at the time that made it really hard. Paul had voted for the ACA, like, like many a good Democrat. And that was Um, at a time where in in states like New Hampshire, there was a lot of vulnerability around that.
1: It was a rough midterm.
0: It was a rough midterm. It was rough. And it was sort of, it sort of got rough quickly and stayed rough for us. You know, Um, and Paul's, he's a great, a great guy. He was a, a good candidate. That was never an easy race. I would say overall, it wasn't like the greatest professional experience for me. So it was a mixed bag professionally for sure. But two things happened that were important there. One, I realized I loved being back in New England, and I really loved being close to my family. I was about an hour away from my family, and that felt really good. And two, I met my now husband, so that also made the experience <laughs> worth it.
1: Sometimes that's so much more important than the job—is the friends and boy, potential yeah life partner.
0: Yeah, yeah totally, totally. And so, I of course like. You know, thank the the universe very much for that experience. Even though, again, professionally it wasn't the most enjoyable, it worked out okay for me in the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like I went to graduate school. I didn't finish my PhD, but I did meet my wife there. So
0: yeah, there you, know. you go. Yeah. There's, yeah,
1: that was four years well spent. <laughs> for
0: right? That's, that feels worth it. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: there were other reasons it was worth it too. Oh, good. <laughs> what was Sunshine Sachs?
0: So I will say professionally coming out of New Hampshire, I felt really burnt out on politics. I'd sort of jumped in when I was 21 and I'd woken up, you know, 26 or seven. I was just burnt out. I was like, I'd sort of gotten on this train that was moving really fast and hadn't gotten off and was feeling pretty disillusioned. So Sunshine Sachs is a is a big PR firm in New York City. So I decided to move back to New York City, which still kind of felt like home base at the time and decided to try straight up communications. They had a lot of politically aligned clients, which I thought was interesting. They had a couple labor unions. They did a lot of crisis communications work, which was the department I worked in. So I thought there would still be a bit of that mission driven work that would keep me interested. So I got a, a job there as like a account executive, whatever the PR role is.
1: Senior account executive.
0: Senior account. Yeah, I was a senior account executive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um and it was, oh, and I hated it. <laughs> I have to say I hated it. Um, and I don't, you know, um, I'm glad I did it, honestly, because I think it taught me I got a great like this is what a firm is like and sort of realized that's that's not a space I love to, to work in. The clients I got to, to work on were in theory very cool But I just didn't love the sort of like transactional nature of like the client relationship and the sort of dipping in and out of projects. I I do better focused on one thing. I do better like building up sort of trust and institutional knowledge. And one minute it was a labor union. One minute it was like a city project. And I just felt, you know, scattered. And and I really missed the like deeply mission-driven work of politics. I think I'd probably taken that part for granted in my first jobs. And I just sort of felt a lot like, what is the point of what we're doing?
1: It seemed like to this point in your career, changes later, you had sort of around the year plus mark kind of started to look for the next thing or gotten antsy. Do, wh- why, why do you think that was?
0: So I think, that, I think that's completely true. I felt very hungry to collect experiences I also was ambitious in a way, th- in a, I'm ambitious in a different way now, but at the time I was ambitious in a way around like, like I really wanted to like work my way up the ranks and I really wanted to like.
1: You were seeing that wasn't going to happen yeah, necessarily at these places.
0: Yeah. Right. And it just wouldn't happen kind of fast. And I definitely had like a lot of youthful, like, Sort of anticipation around, like it wasn't happening fast enough for me.
1: Impatience, yeah, yeah. patience,
0: yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, so part of it was that, like, I was ambitious and I just really wanted to, like, I was like, okay, I did this, I proved I can do it. Now I want to do the next thing, you know. Um, but, but also, I was very like, and in some ways, I am today, although in different ways. Like, I do appreciate that collection of experiences and sort of like wanting to try something new to like diversify both my skill set, but also like the way I think about the work. Also, candidly, salary salary was a big thing. Like by moving places, I could consistently bump up my salary in a way that when you're at one place, it's really hard to do, especially in like campaign political world. Um, so, so I think
1: employers are often not attentive enough to moving people up as they're there. Uh, it's different in different arenas, but my theory has usually been to stay ahead of people's salary exactly. interest yeah. in order to retain them. Yeah. And, and I haven't always been able to do that, but that's um, something
0: I, I think about a lot now, because I know how much that salary stuff drove me to leave places early on
1: and who, who your boss is and how well they work with you. You know, those are the things that, that make people leave. You start working with Congressman Joe Kennedy, the third, and it seems like you've been in his world since then which is very different. What has it been about Joe Kennedy and that that job that has kept you longer?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. One I think about a lot. It's also funny cuz I got so when I was working at Sunshine Sachs, somewhat out of the blue I got a call from the guy that was was managing his first congressional race. He was about to declare for Congress for the first time. And I got a call from this guy and he was like, "Oh, I got your name from so and so and heard you might be wanting to move back to Boston. We're looking for a comms director." And I literally ignored the message for a couple weeks. I was like, I don't want to go back to politics. I don't want it like, no. But then my then boyfriend, now husband, who was with me in New York at the time, we'd, we'd really been talking about wanting to get back to Boston. So over the course of a couple of weeks, we were sort of talking about it. And I was like, you know what, I should just call this guy back. Maybe it's a job that will just get me to Boston and then I can like leave and do other things. <laughs> um, so I called the guy back and, and ended up coming to interview and took the job on the campaign. Um, Eleven years ago, or something. Uh, and, you know, I think a couple of things have kept me there. One is Joe himself, and the fact that he is a incredibly kind, empathetic, trusting boss. So he's always given me wide latitude to do my work and to, like grow my work, which is to our point, what we were just talking about, that's like huge. I've always felt like, I could take on more and more responsibility with him if I wanted. I could test things out in different directions if I wanted. Once sort of trust was established, which took some time, but once trust was established, he was very generous with that trust and and still is. So he's a big part of it. And I believe in him as as a public servant and as a leader. Another thing was that the role, even though it was on my resume is like the same role, communications director to him, that I was for like a decade it actually had a lot of iterations in terms of like, there was that first campaign, and then there was like him getting elected in those first couple of years of being in Congress, which, which was just sort of like getting our feet under us and figuring out how do you, how are you a Congressperson and what does an office look like, and then the sort of midway point in his congressional career where he got a lot of national attention and had some big national moments, and like when he did the response to State of the Union, and so. So that was sort of a different iteration of our work when he was a real national figure than his decision to run for Senate, that Senate race. So the work evolved pretty constantly, even though my role, again, on paper kind of stayed the same. We were always tackling sort of a new challenge or a new context. And the last thing I'll say that's kept me there is also just the phase of life I'm in. I got married, I guess the first year he was in Congress, I got married, started having kids, settled somewhat here in, in Massachusetts my MO in my twenties of like hopping around every year is no longer, (laughs) no longer interesting to me or viable. So, so that's kept me here too.
1: That makes sense from afar that Marky Kennedy Senate primary was pretty noteworthy. I guess the received wisdom that's come to me is like Marky did a pretty good job of boxing Kennedy out from the left and making alliances including on climate and it's hard to oust a guy who's been around and a lot of people like markey and have for a long time and it was sort of like young younger upstart but with incredible family name in in massachusetts i mean that's a it's a marquee sort of political race what did you take away from that how did you see it
0: i try to make a point to not pundit too much on that race because I'm just too close to it still my perspective is so personal you know um, so so I will leave it to others to do most of the punditing around that even a couple of years out I know I don't have the clear eyes on it that that you know it would take to be a, a smart pundit.
1: Well, that's the tradition is that pundits don't know as much as people who are in the middle of it and they just mouth off, right? And so here you actually might know something, might as well be quiet. Right,
0: right. No, totally. I'll say two sort of small pundit things and then I'll say a bigger thing about the experience for me. The two minor sort of pundit points I take from it to the point you, you made about Joe getting boxed in is I actually think it was Markey's establishment and institutional support in the state that killed us. I think had he only consolidated that sort of very online Twitter progressive, like that would have been fine. But yeah. he had locked in the Democratic establishment. I'm saying that recognizing I'm working for a guy named Kennedy, but Marky had locked in that establishment support. So every state senator, every DTC committee, you know, all those people.
1: Did they work to do that? I assume they did. I assume they they did their homework and had of course had relationships. He's been a senator for a long, long time. Did you guys have a chance at that? Or was that a no-go?
0: I think I think they worked at it. I think it gets to my second point though, which is my big sort of pundit pundit takeaway. It just showed me the awesome power of incumbency. And obviously that is true everywhere. And so this is just was the experience in Massachusetts. But even for a guy with all the privilege Joe has and all the connections and all the assets, more than any other kind of upstart candidate could dream of, right? Even with all that, the way incumbency is protected and people fall in line around it was a thing to behold. And and I think something we miscalculated or underestimated.
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes you need a big reason to oust somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that was fully there
0: yeah yeah and that's where that's where i'll i'll limit my punditing because again i have sort of a
1: well you probably have a pretty take
0: on those things yeah you
1: probably were rooting for your own candidate
0: i was rooting for my own candidate and i thought he had well i will say i thought he had i guess i do think a lot was made over joe's reason and joe's case and i will take you know sort of all the responsibility obviously we didn't do a good enough job sort of communicating that but his reason was the same reason I think most people pursue elected office, which is that they think they have something to offer. And when they're taking on an incumbent or another opponent, they think they'll do a better job than the person that's in there now. With so the huge caveat that we obviously didn't do the, the job we needed to do communicating that, I did get frustrated with that. Like, well, why is he doing it? Like, he's doing it because he thinks he has something to offer. He thinks he'll do a better job. It's up to the voters to decide. But the sort of like that reaction that like, how dare he do this and he doesn't have a good enough reason, that was tough. Because it was like, you know, it felt like a sort of um
1: It's funny because Kennedys along the way have often been treated like they were in too much of a hurry. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Which yeah.
1: But sometimes despite that, they have uh, you know, one one presidencies yeah, and things like yeah. that. Yeah.
0: And I hope, I guess, and I do think there's movement on this in other spaces. I hope we sort of as, as Democrats and progressives, I hope we sort of get over our issues with people who are in a hurry, you know, like with young people who are, are ambitious and want to jump in. And, you know,
1: I mean, it's interesting that like with AOC, that if, if the incumbent had played the cards that he had, I think he just failed to play his cards and then he probably would have held on to his seat on a similar basis. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally truly, truly separate from my experience with Joe. I'm a I'm a big fan of primaries. And the idea that our party tries to to shut them down or go to such lengths for incumbency protection just drives me nuts. So I, I'm a big fan of people who are who are challenging that.
1: How did Joe Kennedy take his loss?
0: Oh it was it was devastating. He took it I think gracefully you know losses suck. <laughs> they suck and and his especially by the end that race got so ugly and so personal and so nasty as a lot of them do you know he sort of not had to deal with not just the headlines of like okay he lost but also like the kennedy you've like you know your whole family legacy is up in flames like everything's like the kennedy the you know, dynasty's dead like all that stuff so so it's a lot i think joe has very good sort of systems at this point in his life for like tuning out noise, um, especially where where his family is concerned. So I I definitely saw those come into play. And I think he, all things considered, sort of accepted it, picked himself back up and thought a lot about like, what do I want to do now? And how do I sort of dust myself off? Um, But in the moment, of course, it's, he was devastated. We were devastated. It was so shitty.
1: (laughs) I just hear like an undercurrent of, you guys were pissed off. I hear you not saying stuff about the Markey campaign. (laughs) 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 uh,
0: (laughs) I, I, you know, it's hard. Certainly, I think we were very pissed off, and I'm sure that existed because of how personal it got and ugly. I'm sure that exists on both sides. Like people, like there are people. I think in Massachusetts politics, who still are pissed off at me and don't like me or don't, you know, don't want to deal with me or talk to me. You know, so I think that anger is on both sides. And I I think that's pretty, you know, normal in these really pitched political races. For me, honestly, the pissed offness faded pretty quickly. You know, I feel a lot of like in the immediate aftermath, I just felt a lot of like sadness and and it had been a really excruciating just experience. So I just felt pretty depleted. Um,
1: Yeah, I guess I've talked to a lot of people about this, but there's often this feeling when you are invested in a candidate and you believe they're the right person. When the electorate, whatever portion of it goes the other way, it's hard to accept. It's not hard to accept in a Trump level. Yeah. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> of like, we're going to lie and say we won or deny it, but it's personal. It's personal for the candidates, personal for staff. Yeah. It's, yes. it's hard. Yeah.
0: In all things, I've never been a fan of the idea, like when people tell you not to take things personally. Because for me, like the professional is quite personal, you know, and like, that's why I do this work. So (laughs) I truly do think of that race as, you know, it was, it was a political brawl and those happen. And like, we've all been through them in different forms and in different rings. I do feel lucky. And I think Joe, Joe feels this way that something really lovely and meaningful rose from the ashes there. And we have this thing now that in many ways makes me much more excited than a senate office would have so so i feel lucky for and that's
1: what and that's actually what we're we're here to talk about in a lot of ways so i kind of feel good about how the trajectory of this interview has landed <laughs> yeah, us there we go <laughs> so what's the founding story for groundwork project
0: so groundwork started so really quickly probably sooner than we were kind of ready for or wanted to wanted to deal with it like we were confronted with a question after joe lost of what to do with his like sort of assets for lack of a better word but we have this like we have this very big email list we have these big social media platforms a, a big donor network volunteers we knew that it, i mean a if we didn't sort of keep cultivating them they would disappear but b they were sort of like expecting or wanting to know like what's the thing what's the next thing and and so we sort of again more quickly than i think we were ready for or anticipated started having conversations about like okay is there something else you want to do here, Joe? Do you want to reorder? You know, he's been very clear. He's not planning to run for office again anytime soon. So like, can we take these assets and just give them a new mission, redeploy them for something really worthy that he cares a lot about? And there are a lot of options. There were a lot of options we discussed. Joe is a person who, he's sort of like a a depth and breadth guy, which is like a unique combination where he cares about a lot of issues and he cares about them all very deeply. (laughs) so getting him to pick is hard. <laughs> so there were a lot of options, and you know a lot of former politicians start sort of typical packs of some sort where they they support former colleagues or new and exciting candidates. And we didn't want to do just that. That was like we sort of identified early on. And at this point, it was really just me, Joe, and our fundraiser um, Julia Hoffman. It was kind of the three of us having these discussions. The crew left at, at the end of things, electorally. So one thing that Joe from his time in office, is very passionate about is this idea. It's funny, it was sort of a slogan of ours during the campaign. So I kind of hate it now. But this idea of like showing up, showing up everywhere. And he has a lot of feelings about how Democrats don't show up places. And then they have the sort of audacity to ask people to trust them. When he was in office, the party loved to send him all over the country. He was a sought after surrogate. He went all over the place. They sent him some places where other national Dems might not be as welcome because his name was was valuable there, so he went to West Virginia, he went to the Rio Grande Valley, and through all this, you know, I think he was in something like well, the first Trump cycle. I think he was in something like twenty three states or something by the end of the cycle campaigning. So, just from all that, he got he developed this really really strong sense that the party was doing something very wrong when it came to to voter engagement, particularly in places that we write off as red states, and so he was really interested in how we could support, as as we talked about sort of a new mission, what rose to the top for him was how could we support progressive fighters <laughs> in in red states who are like on an island and maybe there's a sexy candidate of the moment, you know, might guess be in Mississippi or Doug Jones and for a, a hot second, the political world thinks like, oh, we could win Mississippi and they just like dump a kajillion dollars on the state. But they haven't invested a cent or or a minute of attention in anything prior to that. So spending that money effectively is impossible. And the second that candidate wins or loses, it's gone anyway. So he and we were just thinking of this question about like how what 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 it was the really like long and hard work that would have to happen to build up civic infrastructure in these places so that progressives would would have a prayer of of winning some of the big fights there. And it was coming off of what happened in Georgia in 2020. We sensed a, a bit of an opportunity in terms of our donors and our political funders around this concept of year-round organizing. The idea that that was the way you really build power over several years, and that you can really shift a state's political trajectory through that model. So, um, all those things sort of sort of brought us to groundwork, and and it was it was. Iterative a lot to start. Like we had a concept and then we were like, we think we have this idea. We think this is a real gap in the progressive funding ecosystem. We think there's high need. We kind of have to test this though and talk to a lot of people. So we exhaustively sort of researched, landscape surveyed, just talked to people for probably six months before we actually started being a, a thing.
1: What did you discover during that research? Because I'm aware of other funding organizations that do focus on seemingly similar movement organizations around the country that do work year-round that are organizing groups you know movement voter for example Billy Wims hat a number of the sort of funding collectives at least say that that is where their aim is and then there's there are in states also like donor tables that Include that in what they do, but what did you see, and what made you think it was still a big gap?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. What we saw was a big gap, and the folks you just mentioned are some of our sort of mentors: Movement Voter Project, Rural Democracy Initiative, Way to Win, Groundswell. These fantastic national orgs that fund fund local organizing, and see, and that's that's really their model. They're sort of mentors to us. We hold them up as as a as m- many things we aspire to be. But within that kind of crew and the extended crew, there's not one focused on red states. I hate the word red states, but I'm just going to use it for shorthand because that's what, that's what people know them as. Those orgs would be the first to admit like they can't, they can't be everywhere. They can't spend ev- everywhere. They, for a lot of reasons, tend to prioritize the traditional battlegrounds. And I remember conversations with Movement Voter Project, who they've been so wonderful to us. They were really excited about the idea of us focusing on these states because they're like, we wish we could, but we are so wrapped up in these battlegrounds. And the need is so great there, which it is. Alabama's never going to be on our top, you know, or, or in this phase, isn't going to be on our top priority. So it was a way that we could kind of actually enter the space in partnership with some of these orgs to say, we're not trying to do what you do or like replicate you. We're just trying to kind of stand by your side and fill that gap that isn't being filled elsewhere. And then in the states, The sort of existing infrastructure efforts in the state's donor tables, C3, C4 tables, like they have been our closest partners on the ground in many ways. And we work really closely to sort of amplify, scale their efforts where we can. A lot of our states are extremely early stages, like just starting a donor alliance, don't have one yet. So we try to like catalyze or accelerate that where we can and where it's wanted. The initial conversations we had where we were like, talking with organizers or local leaders on the ground and in the places where we work. And like we said, we're starting a new political advocacy org and our mission is to invest in organizing in in States like yours. And they would be like, what? And the concept that a national funder would like choose to focus on a state like Oklahoma or Alabama, they didn't trust us at first because we said, you know, they were like, there's something weird here, you know? Um, So because they are so 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 insanely under-resourced and used to being written off and used to never making the list of priority states for anyone um yeah.
1: did you find that focus to make it difficult to raise money because because I would think it would yes right.
0: i love this question cuz it's um it's something we're super passionate about um yes it is hard so we spend a incredible amount of time like educating political donors cultivating political donors trying to explain to them why these states are really important and priorities why these states are winnable how there is a smarter and more strategic way to invest political dollars rather than just like panic sending Mike Espy 20k right before his race it is a huge part of our work and more than we anticipated it being, but it's one of the most rewarding pieces of our work because we see people's minds shifting and it's freaking slow and it is takes a lot of, of our capacity. But that feeling of sort of convincing someone or when their eyes light up like, oh, I get it. I'm bought in now. We see that happen. So we're like, okay, we, we can do this. One of the sort of central pillars of our model is this is narrative change. And the idea that we want to just to shift the concept of what states are worth progressive investment. We do that at this point a lot by talking about our states. We call them the real battlegrounds. They're the front lines of the biggest
1: issues of our time. Um, All the the bad stuff coming up out of them is causing national problems. Exactly.
0: Exactly. The idea that Democrats can be the party of like voting rights. And not be sustainably investing in Alabama and Mississippi is like insane to me. Or we can be the party of climate and environmental protection, and we're not putting in the work and time to build progressive infrastructure in West Virginia. Like there's such a disconnect there. And there was just this litany of cases that are, you know, that were horrific, but gave us really good fodder for our case. You know, the Roe case came out of Mississippi. There was a huge EPA case out of West Virginia that gutted, hamstrung the Biden administration on climate regs. There was a big indigenous sovereignty case out of Oklahoma. And of course, we've got Shelby that came out of Alabama. This is the cost of our decision to ignore or write off these places.
1: So I've talked recently and over a longer period of time to a number of people who I think are kind of in analogous position to you, whether they are working on helping progressives in rural America or in faith America or in Southern America or, you know, all of these categories where we have given up as a party, not everybody, but the people who target money on a large scale, the super PACs, the party committees, all, you know, the large expenditures are not going there and they're not going there for reasons that sort of make sense short term often If we put all our money into the swing state of Georgia and we we hold the Senate by one vote, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. But then cycle after cycle, Alabama doesn't change, et cetera. It seems like a tough argument Mm -hmm. that I see a lot of people like you making Mm -hmm. successfully starting to. Mm -hmm. It's a process. People don't understand that in general, there is no central brain for progressives, right? There's a whole lot of people making decisions in different arenas. Are we making bad allocation decisions about where our money goes globally and how do we change that?
0: Yes, I I think we are making bad decisions. I think we're making non-strategic decisions. And I think, I truly, truly think this, like believe this with every fiber of my being, that we can do both. We can walk and chew gum here because for our states, They will be the first to tell you organizers in those places. They are cheap dates, like for a sliver of the money that is spent, sometimes impactfully, sometimes lit on fire in the big battlegrounds every cycle. A sliver of that. Just give me a sliver of that (laughs) and invest it sustainably in a place like Mississippi over the next five years. We will be winning statewide there. When you look at the numbers, and I wish I had them
1: handy of like- There aren't that many congressional districts in Mississippi and Alabama. West Virginia- flipped from a democratic state, like very recently. I mean, we see this at Arkansas. I don't know how much investment the other side put in and I don't know how much of that was just, you know, the changing coalitions of the parties affecting things. I've had these conversations the last couple weeks with Doug Jones and Doug Turner. I hate seeing us treat any part of the country like a backwater.
0: Yeah, same. So we talk about... With our, with our funders and, our, and donors and, and the people we're trying to bring into this work, we talk about things quite politically, but the sort of bigger point, much bigger point, it's not a political game here, the bigger point are the horrific human consequences of our decision to write off these places. And all of our states face the highest levels of incarceration, the highest levels of poverty, the highest levels of health crisis. There is... Such a human cost to this decision. And this is something that fires Joe up a lot. That's where his patience runs out in terms of us. Like, we're supposed to be the party that cares about these things, but we're ignoring the places where those problems and that pain is most acute. So, for political funders and donors, our argument is that there is a much more strategic way for them to think about the political map and to invest their money that does not require them to abandon the traditional battleground states or, or sacrifice a short-term electoral gain. But with a little more thought, these places could come on the map in a, in a very big way. We have an advisor in Mississippi, and I love the way he talks about what it will take to win Mississippi. But he basically is like, we don't have to win like every county in Mississippi or whatever. He's like, we have to strategically lose these certain counties by less. Like We just have to lose them by less, and we will win statewide.
1: Yeah, It's not that many votes.
0: Yes. Yes. It's not that many votes. I want to say one other thing just to make sure I get this in. But the other thing about our states is the organizers and the people on the ground there doing the work are the most ferocious, resilient, talented organizers I have seen anywhere. I think anyone on our team has seen anywhere. And we have a lot of organizing and electoral experience on our team. Their skills have been honed in the fires of the most colossal battles of, of our modern democracy. And they are so freaking good and talk about it being personal just so personal to them.
1: Who is coming to mind when you are saying that
0: a couple that come to mind. These are like heroes of mine now, not to say like I didn't work, work for and around amazing elected officials, but the people we work with now are like real, real heroes of mine. Um, and that's been a, a cool thing for me personally. But our, our team's on the ground in West Virginia with this week with a woman named Dr. Shaniqua Smith. She runs the Black Voter Impact Initiative in out of Charleston, West Virginia. And she's basically trying to organize Black power and Black advocacy on the ground, which in a state like West Virginia has been severely neglected and Black advocates don't tend to get the time of day. But she has undertaken this incredibly effective organizing campaign to bring Black leaders and organizers together. And it sort of culminates every year in this policy day at the state capitol. And she'll say, she'll be like, it's the most amount of Black people you'll ever see in a room together in West Virginia. But what they've been able to advocate for legislatively, the attention and press sort of media narrative impact of their work is amazing. We've got an organization out of the Mississippi Delta that's actually been around a long time, the Mississippi Workers Center. The woman who runs it, Jeribu Hill, is a truly a civil rights icon in her own right and has been in the trenches of low wage worker fights in in the just the most impacted communities you can imagine for for generations so hearing her stories and how she has how she has stayed in this work and in this place and and that is a common theme we see in our grantees and our partners and our people the fact that they stay and keep up the fight no matter how many times they lose and no matter the sort of personal costs or threats or risks that they undertake as part of it, they stay and they keep doing the work, which is like, you know, just blows my mind. So.
1: Yeah. I I have talked to some folks like that along the way. And I often have been just very moved by the stories and impressed by the skills and the tenacity. And yeah, I I get it.
0: Yeah. I have no doubt. And this is the case, you know, this is our ultimate case that's on us to make to, to donors and funders that I promise you, if you give people like Jeribu and Shaniqua more resources and you sort of fa- facilitate collaboration between them and other amazing organizers on the ground and leaders who are thinking about what it takes to, to shift power in the state, like I promise you they will shift power in that state. I promise you they'll notch some serious progressive victories, but they can't do it without resources. They've been getting nothing for for years.
1: I think I saw that you guys were in the two to $3 million range in what you had raised and spent or something like that, which is uh, a lot of money. I have a lot of respect for a million (laughs) dollars. But it's also a tiny amount of money in politics. What do you need? What could you put to work? How much impact do you have with that amount, amount and how much more could you have if you could multiply it by 10 or, 100. yes
0: one side of the work in this in the states where we we do it is that there have been so few resources that any resources are both very welcome and really impactful, so like twenty five thousand dollars for a year, which is what where our grants start, is transformative for a lot of these organizations. That being said, the need is so great that I would like our budget to be so much higher for two reasons, both so we could invest in more organizers and organizations, but also and this is probably most critical. So we could offer more support to the organizations that we're already granting to, and this is a huge focus of our work this year. If our goal here and our our pitch that we're making to donors is this is the way you create sustainable, progressive civic infrastructure in these states, then we have to make sure what we're investing in is sustainable. We call it wraparound support, but that's what we offer our grantees. We have to give these organizers a whole lot more than just a check, but we have to give them access to um, all kinds of sort of capacity, training, org development, resources, leadership development, things that make it possible for them to do this work year round, make a decent living off of it, take care of themselves and scale, bring in more people, create healthy, thriving organizations that will last for a decade plus. And so that's where the price tag goes up, again, relatively so small compared to other states. But we want to be supporting more people in our states, but we want to be supporting them very deeply because in in these places in particular, but in any place, like just writing a check isn't going to cut it because they've been cut off from access to so many other resources that those of us in sort of blue states or coastal cities take for granted in the democratic sort of ecosystem.
1: In states that are ahead politically, that have fought this fight over the last decade or decade and a half, that have moved themselves, Colorado and Virginia, and places where they found funding, they built an ecosystem of organizations, which did include, in the cases that I'm thinking of, organizations of the type that you're talking about, but also other kinds of political kind of things that knit together. How much are you aware of or working with the other components of the necessary, healthy, progressive ecosystem in the states you're working in
0: yeah i would say very closely in keeping to our mission our dollars are going to the the hyper local groups the real grassroots organizers um our theory of change is that that is the building block you need first to create infrastructure but that's a block you know and there's there's a lot of other blocks and so we are really lucky in our states to have really good partnerships, friendships, collaborations, whatever, with with the folks who are sort of leading in the infrastructure space. So Alabama, for example, has really strong civic infrastructure entities set up. They've got a great donor table. They've got a great C3, C4 table. They have a communications hub, which is a pretty innovative infrastructure model. We stay in good contact about what we're doing and what they're doing so we can stay aligned. We also know that as fantastic as infrastructure like that is and our partners are, within a state a lot of groups still struggle to access even that so we put a lot of time into both making sure we are in partnership with those infrastructure leaders but also that we're getting way beyond that because we don't want to leave any stone unturned in terms of supporting the organizing capacity we think is necessary so and and I you know I'm a big believer in like the table model I think it's really good I think it has been and will be transformative in a lot of our states but it also has limitations and depending who's running it it can get tricky and some groups can feel like it's not home for them so we want to make sure we're reaching those groups groups too so and our grantee pool you know many of them are very active in their tables some are decidedly not you know so we try to pay attention to our relationships in all in all the quarters i would say
1: how much time do you get out of joe kennedy for this
0: we get about as much as we, as we ask for, which is nice. <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't do much day-to-day stuff with us. He has a couple of other uh, gigs that take a lot of time. <laughs> he's overcommitted as always. But he um, he's really passionate about the mission. And especially now that he's been on the ground in all of our states. And so he's sort of personally met a lot of these people, made connections. And just, you know, like with most people, once you're personally connected to and invested in a place you become quite passionate about it. On a weekly basis, um, we do a couple of meetings with him each week to kind of run through things, check in, align ourselves. And then where he's needed and useful, we tap him in. And where we don't need him, we try to leave him alone. Getting back to what I said at the beginning, he's generous with his trust once it's been kind of built. So he gives us a lot of latitude, which which I appreciate.
1: (laughs) Emily, what should I have asked you that I haven't?
0: Well, one question that we get a lot and maybe some of the folks listening would have is what are Groundwork's long-term plans? And I think people ask that question with Joe in mind and his political career. And so to the extent that's something people wonder about, you know, I think he was really clear from the start that if we were going to put all this like time and effort and money into building something, it had to be something like real and that was going to stand on its own. And and not be like attached to his political career. So like, if he wanted to just like create a vehicle to keep connection.
1: It's not the Kennedy groundwork project.
0: This is a horrible joke, but I'm like, if if he was using this to like lay the groundwork for a future political- It's not world, very
1: strategic. It's not very Because he's strategic. not gonna run for <laughs> yeah. Senate in Alabama.
0: Exactly, unless he's willing to pick up and move to one of these places, which is, you know, he's pretty rooted in Massachusetts, as we know. It's not very strategic. He was like, either let's just do a like political standard political pack where we can keep some relationships warm, or let's build a real thing. And we chose the real thing option. And he's like, then this is a separate thing from from me and my political career, of course, like, you know, his name is on it now. And he's very attached to it. And but should he ever decide to run for office at some point in the future, which maybe he will, I don't know, at some point in the future, you know, if we've done our job, right, which I hope we are doing groundwork will stand on its own, and continue for for many, many years to come, I hope.
1: And be a credit to him if it does well.
0: It, it will be a credit. Yes, <laughs> yes. And to you. Yes. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for talking to me today. Really yeah. been an honor. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, no, this was great. Thank you. I appreciate getting the opportunity. That wasn't, being interviewed wasn't so bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you, you came across very well. Oh, thank you. <laughs>